welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Dario Linares. Thanks for joining me. I'm not going to talk for too long before getting into the episode which we recorded live at the Garden Cinema. It was a discussion that in the lore of the Cinematologists explored so many different themes in interesting ways, the connections of which often require a leap of imagination as much as reasoned academic formulation. Beyond that, the event even got me thinking about the very idea of liveness, both in the sense of having to think and articulate in the immediate circumstance of a film's impact, which is as much an intuitive thing, a notion that I'm borrowing from Sarah Cleaver, who was my co-host for the evening. But alongside that, the way that being on stage reacting to a film is itself a deconstruction of the very act of viewing. Throughout watching the film, I find myself thinking, how am I reacting to this? And how can I convert that into something meaningful to say in front of these, in front of the attendant audience, which I would assume is expecting that? This translates into a performance of self and the anxieties of what one says in the uncertain space between thought and speech. Again, when people are watching you do it. I've been thinking about the live aspect of the show also because I'm writing a book chapter at the moment on the concept of the podcast space. Space is a term that does an awful lot of heavy lifting when it comes to analysing podcasting, I've found. It relates to the complex processes of producing a podcast, the spaces of recording, for example, and the attendant textures that are associated, say, with recording in a studio or recording in a live venue. How do then the physical spaces in which one records translate into the aesthetic sound spaces that one creates in the edit? And then as a result of this, the kind of sonic landscape that one hears as a listener. And then underpinning this, of course, are the ways in which sound can be manipulated to create a sonic material space for the listener. But then how that converts or is a bridge to a conceptual space, particularly in terms of the processing of ideas. So in other words, you set up a podcast using digital technologies and recording in certain spaces and you define a context for speech and then you have the hosts and the guests contributing to what we might call a constructive, productive dialogue, particularly in the context of conversational podcasts that are produced by academics or journalists. Neil and I have always thought about the show as a unique kind of space for us. And maybe we project that onto our listeners. So what's it like to listen to a live episode when one wasn't there? Is there a sense of entering a space that once existed materially in time and space? So then what you are hearing, does that mean it's a kind of sonic ruin, an echo which now reverberates in your mind? A few other things serendipitously popped up on my social media channels, which have been feeding into these thoughts. A few days ago, Facebook alerted me to the fact that it was four years to the day since our episode on David Lowry's A Ghost Story went out. I consider this one of our best episodes, particularly in terms of the live ones. The film inspired so much debate and conversation about metaphysics and philosophy and mortality and how we ground ourselves in space and time with a certainty that defies the ephemerality of our existence. But alongside this, it became more important because there was just a sense of being part of a communal live experience, that people shared something together 
and the thoughts and conversations were both personal and universal. And I wondered how much of the depth of that raw emotion, which we experienced in the live event. And interestingly, I was contacted by Lottie, a former Falmouth student who was there on Twitter saying it was one of her favorite nights while she was at university. I wonder how much of that depth reverberates in the recording that people listen to, particularly for those people who weren't there. Then just last week, I was very lucky to be taken by my girlfriend to Letters Live, which is this big production at the Royal Albert Hall, in which a range of celebrities, most of them actors, but also singers and politicians, read out famous letters from history and ones that have a contemporary resonance. It's hosted by Benedict Cumberbatch, who I think is a, a very good actor, but reading interviews that he's given, let's say I've, I've not been his biggest fan in terms of when he's questioned about the class aspect of the creative industries. But he went up in my estimation after, after watching this event. I particularly enjoyed his reading of George Bernard Shaw's angry rejections of invites in his later life. One that was most affecting was read out by Louise Brearley, written by a Czech politician, Milada Horakova, a letter sent to her 16-year-old daughter before she was executed in 1950. She was arrested by the Czech secret police on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the communist regime. Selina Godden really beautifully performed a letter reading Melissa Harris Perry's deeply moving and personal rebuke to a US Senator Richard Mordock after he had said that he believed abortion shouldn't be permitted even after rape. The highlight of the evening, though, was Miriam Margulies and Wendell Pierce from The Wire reading an erotic exchange between Henry Miller and Anais Din, which was a 20th century literary version of sexting that really left nothing to the imagination. Only actors on that level, and perhaps of that age, were able to get away with uh, the content of, uh, of those letters. And the finale was the former US Secretary of State, John Kerry, reading a letter by American writer E.B. White, which was an epistolary response to a fan who asked how to deal with the pain and suffering that is abundant in the world. Clearly, the message of the letter aligned with that contemporary allusion to keep going. Hope is the byproduct of quiet resilience. And in some ways, this actually seemed lacking in potency. This sense of keep calm and carry on, you know, is a very British thing. And I think maybe a more acutely angry response would be more in keeping with the contemporary zeitgeist. But hey, it was a middle-class audience at the Royal Albert Hall. I enjoyed the event because many of you may know I am into letter writing myself. It's something I've done for a while since I got a, a, an old 50s typewriter. I really enjoy it for various reasons. It gets me off the computer for one thing, and it helps me to process my thoughts in a much more linear way rather than the fractured back and forth continual editing that seems to be inherent to using word processor programs like Word. And I think always reading letters that have been typed add a kind of weight that is somewhat lost with digital technologies. And when letters are read out loud, this sense of materiality on the page is literally and figuratively amplified. This event brought back the liveness of the letter, its immediate creation and then consumption, which of course was originally private and between two people, is opened out to define and underpin a spatial experience. Even with the stars and the spectacle of that event, it really was down to the power of the letters. Lastly, 
The thing that these thoughts coalesced around was the taping of this episode that you're about to hear. We screened Prano Bailey Bronze directorial debut, or feature debut, Sensor, which I hadn't seen and really enjoyed, as you'll hear, as much for the fact that it provoked so many ideas, many of which I regurgitated in a very unformalised way in the Q&A. As I said, I was joined by Sarah Cleaver from the Projections podcast, which was wonderful because I think she was a perfect foil for the film and perhaps for my excesses as well. Mark Jenkin came to see and watch the film, so it was great to catch up with him as well. And there were a group of students who came from my film production course at Ravensbourne University. So thanks to them for turning up. However, unfortunately, the audio that came out wasn't particularly good quality to the point where I've been in two minds as to whether to release this. It's no one's fault, it's just one of those things. I had a play around in my editing software and managed to make it a little better, but there was no fix to the underlying quality of the tape. Interestingly, Sarah sounds human, but I sound like a dystopian AI autocrat from a 1984 sci-fi B-movie. We've tried over the years to steadily improve the sound quality of the podcast, investing in kits and trying to find better spaces that work for that auditory experience that I talked about earlier. But at the end of the day, we are a grassroots independent podcast with no production support. As we found over the years, working in live venues does produce a wide spectrum of results. Part of me wants to apologize for this fact that the sound isn't up to the standards for the show that I place on it myself. But to be honest, if I'm practicing self-care, which I'm trying to do because I'm going through a particularly stressful period at work right now, then I have to forgive myself. And I hope you, the listeners, will do that too. So here we are, myself, Sarah Cleaver, and the audience of the Garden Cinema watching Censor. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, ain't it? I'm cutting it. Butchery, sadism, murder. A wave of depraved and corrupt horror video. Confusing fiction with reality. Doug Smart. Producer, Ident Investment Films. Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this film. There's this actress. I've got this feeling that's Nina. Oh, my sister. You know, if someone did take her, then there's still out there. You've never been clear on exactly what you remember. You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth. Someone's losing the plot. I was wondering if you had anything else on this actress. What's going to happen to her? That's top secret. People think that I create horror. Horror is already out there in all of us. Thank you very much indeed, especially to the students there who I solicited for those applause. Um, welcome to The Cinematologists. We're back live at the Garden Cinema. It's great to be here and I'm also delighted to welcome my co-host for this evening, who is Sarah Cleaver. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, 
We watched a few things at LFF together, mm-hmm. and um, I've been listening to you and Mary on your podcast projections, which everybody should subscribe to, by the way. And you know, it was great listening to you go through the kind of stuff that you like. But I thought this year, when you were talking about that idea of being in the cinema or being around the festival in between the peripheral spaces and stuff, it was really nice to have that conversation this time around. And it seemed to be much, I don't know, stronger is the right word, but you know, there was a lot, a lot more sort of uh, conversation that, that took place because we kept running into each each other at various points. I know, and I so think, nice. yeah, and I think that the it just reminded me what an antidote it is to sort of be in a space with people and talk rather than sort of being antagonistic on social media and there was a real sort of you know against that kind of i'm right you're wrong attitude people were disagreeing but there was a great kind of conversation going on yeah it's true i think it's really come back from covid um the festival and yeah. i think yeah that's just kind of something that happened when we all had to sit at home and watch the films yeah, yeah. Um, I think everyone just got. I, I particularly just. I hated every film I watched, and I got really angry and miserable. And it's just, it's just. You shouldn't stay at home by yourself. I think you learn that now. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And I think you know there was some very polemic films and I know you, you know when you came out of the whale for example mm-hmm. we all sat around it, and I hadn't seen it I wish I'd, wish I'd have gone, gone early in the morning I can't believe you didn't go I know but it's yeah work gets in the way of these things um, but there was that sense of you know here is a film that was really emotionally draining and powerful and then other people saying it was a whole load of nonsense but it was all kind of in in you know in, in it with a good feeling and a, a good sort of sense of people are allowed to have those opinions yeah I think so yeah and your your podcast is coming to the end now of the erotic cinema season. Yeah, I know. Although what we've kind of found out is like all films are erotic, so <laughs> yes. in a way it will never end. No, that's it. You can never run out of uh, kind of fetishized responses, I exactly. suppose. Or, um, but you also run the Zodiac Film Club, which mm-hmm. is actually coming here in a week. So I don't know. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, actually. Um, so it's a it's a film club. We screen films. Um, it will be doing it for it's going to be the fifth year anniversary in March, um, and uh, we had to stop for a while during the pandemic. So this is our first Halloween screening in three years, right. which is going to be great. And we're doing uh, V, which is a Soviet witchy Halloween film. Um, we've only got seven tickets left, so it's okay. Your tickets now, and your focus yeah. on on kind of like films of the occult and you know and various things, but it's not expressly horror, is it? No, not at all. We started it. I started it with a girl called Jordan um, ages ago, and we we wanted to. We had an idea of opening a cinema in London called the Zodiac that only showed horror films. Um, and she broke it down to a much more manageable idea of starting a film club. <laughs> um, Although we were talking about taking over some 200 seat cinema. I know, I, try, I, did, I tried to get you to buy a cinema for me. Yeah, and I know. I, like buy it with the promises of, of um, like socialism. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I really want is the Zodiac cinema. Um, and yeah, we called it the Zodiac Film Club, we just thought it was a cool name. We started off doing a film every month, so you know, 12 Zodiac signs, 12 months. Um, but we screen anything that is, I don't know, really it's just kind of our, it's like, I do it by myself now, so it's just my own tastes. Yeah. Um, but we kind of have a bit of a reputation for maybe screening films that have been ignored or not taken particularly seriously or aren't in the kind of canon of recognised great films. Right. But that's part of your, you know, speaking to you, it's part of your um, sensibility really when it comes to films it seems you know that idea that 
every film, not necessarily every film, but there, there are films that are rejected, mm -hmm. but they have an inherent value, you know, in and of themselves. It's not, and, and the only reason they're rejected is because they don't fit into some kind of canonical context, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely how I've always looked at cinema. Not really, I'm not trying to make a point, I'm kind of trying not to make a point. Right. <laughs> really, but it's ended up being a point. <laughs> but yeah, you can't get away from that, I suppose. And that even, you know, when I've read when you're, you've been writing about sort of being intuitively interested in film rather than sort of intellectually, you know, in, interested in kind of the, the visceral experience of cinema. And we're probably going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, somewhere. definitely. I think I'm just interested. I think I'm just, within a, just to quote Zizek, I think films are just about desire. Right. And I'm interested in what, um, if something, if I have kind of a big desire to watch something or to watch it again or to think about it, mm. I just think that's worth looking at. Yeah. Um, I think that, and I think that when we started it, um, we were, you know, it's five years ago, we, we started to notice a bit of guilt around film watching. Yeah. And we just want people, we just wanted people to kind of take responsibility for their desires a little bit. Yeah. To just have a good time at the cinema. It's really interesting how I think that that sort of possibility, and only that possibility, is now completely interconnected with the ideological position of the film itself and maybe that's something we'll, we'll, we'll talk about because we were just sort of mentioning before that sense of when we watch a film it's not just we're watching a film we are aware of ourselves watching mm -hmm. and the reaction that we have and yeah i mean it's just it's just an interesting thing i think with respect to censor it actually sort of narrativizes that whole idea of watching yourself watching. Um, so this is the, obviously tonight's film, the feature debut of Welsh filmmaker Prano Bailey Bond. Um, and the story and theme nostalgically riffs on the era of video nasties. And I know you've been reading a, a, a little bit. I have because I'm this. too young. <laughs> so no, and unfortunately I'm not, but go ahead. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, you can probably step in and correct me because I've really learned about all of this quite recently. Yeah. I always had an idea of what it was. But it's when VHSs sort of came into prominence. They, the big studios didn't use them yet. They didn't get onto them first because they were afraid of them being pirated. So it was smaller, more experimental studios who tended to make horror films that were using them. And the like certification laws didn't apply to them. So you're getting a load of like really extreme horror sure. just distributed and not going through any kind of legal process. And um, various organisations of which Mary Whitehouse was a member, Indeed. got um, involved and it sparked off, I guess, kind of a moral panic mm. about, video, about video nasties and what they could be responsible for. And it ended up with um, a list of, like a list of films that could be seized. Yeah. And that police performed raids on video shops and um, there's like, oh, you should just read about it. There were such funny stories yeah. about things that happened, like a policeman putting, um, the like what is it called the littlest whorehouse in texas the um dolly parton film yeah. in like confiscating it um, there's about 31 films that got banned in total but they had to bring in part of it was the obscene publications act mm -hmm. but then they needed a specific one for the videos yeah. because they kind of got around that yeah i mean it's it's interesting because it's it's not really it, it, it i think it's true it's true that those films had to be had to go through a process of certification yeah so it's a good thing in the end 
but it also just it sparked off this idea that if you're watching these films that you're a terrible person yeah. <laughs> or like you know a child molester or a murderer or, you know you would, yeah and um and also the idea yeah. of acts theory that actually watching these is going to somehow rearrange your brain cause you to go out and cause harm and this kind of stuff exactly which i actually think is also a really interesting debate because mm. um there's the kind of opposite happened with that in the early 2000s or late 90s they had a study done yeah where they like unequivocally these films do not cause people to act a certain way. I don't yeah. think that's quite true either. I think no. it's somewhere in the middle. It's gone the other way as well though, because there's been studies done on video game play, for example, yeah. and you know, it has shown to kind of heighten areas of the brain that are associated with aggression and this and this kind of stuff. But again I, I think that's something that always is gonna is gonna be under discussion or exactly. you know a debate. That's great. Yeah, which is it is fantastic. I mean I, I don't know though, do, do you see a uh, a, a parallel with the video nasty era in terms of what you've been reading and what is going on right now. It seems to me that there's much more of a, uh, a well, it's a different type of sensorialism that we're going through right now. I think we were talking about it earlier and we were saying that, um, you know, because what was happening in the 80s, that, that those people, Mary Whitehouse, who, like, you all guys should also read into because she's fantastic. <laughs> I love her hair. Um, <laughs> like, whatever you think of Mary Whitehouse, I think she was an activist. Yeah. And she was trying to change policy and do what she like, truly believed for better society. And I think that when people criticize film watching now, it's less about doing that and more about maybe getting a lot of Twitter followers and getting a book deal. Yeah. So I think it's a slightly, I think it's maybe careerism mm. um, has kind of an effect. I think when we talk about people, you know, the people aren't trying to get films stopped or yeah. take them off platforms or not have them shown, but they're trying to kind of control the way that you respond to them or what you should think of them. Yeah. But and also your choice in watching them. Yes. Means you are immoral for immoral. making that choice. But most yeah. of those people are journalists. Yeah. Or they have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, Don't you know? It's the, what is it? The, the co anti growth coalition podcast yeah. you know, against everything. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's it, the vested interest is different. I think, you know, back then there was the vested interest was to, you know, keep conservative family values or whatever. And yeah. now I think it's a slightly different. I don't know. You think you've got to look behind people's actions. Sure. And I think it's people just in there's a content economy a certain type of headline and a certain type of opinion thrives in that economy and people just need to work yeah, <laughs> so. yeah it's true and part of that again is this sort of relationship to horror as a genre and how it's gate kept i think in different ways to say you know if we're talking about the big blockbusters of marvel and dc and that kind of stuff but it, also, it, it is still sort of um controlled or looked to be controlled in that way particularly around you know the the, the critique of contemporary horror in association with it being too art house these days you know I've, I've seen this argument online where horror should be just schlocky and it should be just this pleasurable experience you don't think about too much and the problem with contemporary horror is that it's, it's too arty and stuff i don't know if you've got an i haven't on encountered that. that until you right. mentioned that the other day okay i've never heard of that oh right yeah no i, I, Do I you think agree? so well, I mean, I, again, this is the, the problem that we might have on, on the podcast where I sort of state that I'm not a horror aficionado, mm. so I don't really mind either way. I think if the film is good in and of itself, within the contours of what it's trying to do, that's that's absolutely fine either way. And, and, and I just think as well, there is a sort of, there is a sense of trying to connect the idea of, of, of reorienting the, can, the canon 
around particular filmmakers, particularly maybe someone like Jordan Peele. I mean, I've seen this. You know, Jordan Peele is the greatest horror filmmaker of all time. Mm-hmm. End of. Hashtag end of. You know what I mean? It's clearly somebody who hasn't seen a lot of films would, would say that, I would I would say. Um, but maybe we could finish off by, by sort of thinking about something that we'll maybe we'll come back to after the film and this idea of the illicit and the pleasure in, in, in that. I mean, it seems that the that, that films deal with, and I think this film is, is a case in point, it deals with this idea of um, why we feel pleasure in violence or gore or, you know, over sexual, uh, sexual content, for example, and, and how the film deals with that, whether it punishes or redeems a, a character to give us a, as an audience member in a kind of hour. But, but as you were saying earlier on, you know, that idea of pleasure in film watching and intuitive sense of it, it requires us just to emotionally respond to what we see. Sometimes we don't have a kind of control over, over that. No, I guess we have control over rewriting why that might have been later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I think um, it's interesting in the case of horror because some people really, really don't get any pleasure at all from horror. Yeah. Um, so it's a really divisive one because I think if you're a horror fan, it can be really hard for you to try to explain to people why it makes you feel so good. Yeah. Um, whereas it's much easier in the case of Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. You know, like, doesn't matter how snobby you are. Like, no. It's great. Yes. <laughs> if well, you just, once the lights go out. Well, I'll, we'll definitely have to watch that together. Because yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen it. So. <laughs> great. So here we go. Let's get on with it. This is Prano Bailey Bond's Sensor. Okay. Just a quick break here to say that if you enjoy the Cinematologist podcast, please consider taking the time just to write us a quick review and rating on your podcast app of choice, particularly if you use Apple Podcasts. That's the one with the algorithm that has the most impact in getting the show out to new audiences. Avid listener Mark Hancock has recently written a great review on Apple Podcasts saying the podcast description references the host's academic backgrounds, but I found myself as someone poorly engaged with film theory, taking so much from this podcast. That only happens because the hosts want to share their passion and insights about film in an accessible and approachable way, something that comes across in every episode. So thanks, Mark, for that for that review. We really appreciate it, and it's always nice to know when the style and the form that we choose to produce the podcast in is actually having a, a resonance with listeners. And also just a quick shout out to John Connell, who on Twitter ranked us in his top five film podcasts that he listens to on a regular basis. If you want to go that extra mile, you could become a Patreon subscriber where you'll get access to all of our bonus content, including an extensive monthly newsletter with an exclusive article and a host of recommendations. Obviously, I know times are tough. But if you can support grassroots indie media, it's always appreciated to keep things running. But now, on to the audience Q&A after the screening of Sensor. Well, we're back. Thanks for staying, everyone. Um, where to start? Apart from the evil is on all of us, Sarah. Even you, you know? <laughs> Especially you. Um, that was great. That was really so good. good yeah. It's the third time I've seen it. Oh, okay. Um, and I liked it the best this time. I think I probably finally got it. Maybe. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, we can talk about the the, the ending and you know what we really think it's mm. it's saying because it's quite it's quite open ended. But I mean, just just 
sort of from a production design standpoint, I really liked the the eighties, you know, texture of the of the film, and, and you know, just some of that. Sometimes it's a little bit easy to kind of play Margaret Thatcher in the background and, yeah. and what have you, and but I think it 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 works here, particularly around the the idea of what was going on in terms of watching movies back then in the in the era of VHS. That particularly for me, that just just resonated to the point where I mean I'm sure I'm not making this up but I've been to a video shop where I've got something and halfway through Match of the Day came on (laughs) halfway through the movie really seriously yeah yeah I think I always had this idea I mean I grew up with videotapes too but I always had this idea that when it's a proper videotape that it has got some kind of like magic uh, like varnish on it so you can't it's, it, it, it's not the tape it's literally there's a plastic tab on oh. the cassette and if you put a bit of sellotape over the end you can record over it oh, I never knew yeah it's like an yeah. 80s life hack then before <laughs> there were even life hacks back in the day but it's true talking of like des- you know that sparking desire to watch films i think that's probably where i got that idea from because i grew up yeah. going to blockbuster and just like just me and the video covers yeah and that's probably why and zodiac is a really kind of visual thing you know we have this like instagram and it's always yeah. about the like look of the film and um, I think it must have been from looking at video covers. And it's video covers that particularly incensed Mary Whitehouse. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. It's the covers, it's the covers themselves? Like, oh, oh, right, right. Okay. Not just, but the, um, like the Daily Mail put, used to put the covers on their front pages. Yeah. Like, paradoxically. <laughs> that would be, you know, like, this is obscene thing that they would just pop and publish millions of prints of. Yeah. So, yeah. But, there, there, but there was something interesting about the culture of watching movies and the idea of um, there being a kind of undercurrent of something you could get in an illicit sense. I mean, I haven't watched many films, but I mean, I, I would have been sort of 10, 11, 12 years old, so I wasn't watching sort of video nasties in that sense. But I just remember, you know, around school, there was a sort of illicit copy of Terminator or something that <laughs> was being swapped around, you know what I mean? And it was almost kind of like that idea that you were getting to see something that you couldn't. And it somehow gave it more weight and I don't know whether it's status is the wrong word, but it, but it imbued it with a sense of power that we just don't have that now because, you know, everything is available. I mean, you know, relatively speaking, in, in, you know, in comparison. I suppose so. I think there's still, like, this sort of discourse about films and kind of, you know, I was thinking about um, what happened over lockdown when Megan is Missing became yeah. famous, suddenly got a rebrand. <laughs> And you know, it's just like a film that no one really took paid any attention to, and then a bunch of like teenagers found it. Yeah. And it just—I don't know—and I haven't seen it yet, but it's got this mystique for me. Yeah. I think we can still kind of create mystique and like aura around films online. Yeah. It's just a different—I don't know—it's for a different generation. Yeah, I, I suppose I feel like that that is kind of constructed as a marketing ploy a little bit more now. Maybe, but this was very organic. Yeah. I think. And also, like, Mechanism Missing is fascinating because the director thinks he made it as, like, a public service. <laughs> when it's just, like, it's just an extreme horror film. It's really disgusting. Right. Um, but, um, so, yeah, that, that's his marketing ploy. But the better marketing ploy is that a bunch of teenagers found it 10 yeah. years later. I'm like, this is the most disgusting film to right. watch it. So, yeah, I suppose so, it does happen organically. Yeah, and, and there was always something around films like human centipede and cannibal holocaust and all that. I know I shouldn't mention that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like, oh, can you actually sit through? And even yeah. where which projects was, was a was a big thing, I suppose, that was like, yeah, you know, to, to go, it. To, people couldn't take it. You know? But because I think a lot of people couldn't take it because the camera worked. Yeah, exactly. Up. Uh, no, I've got, I think everyone's got a film that they think 
is they think is unbearable or they think is is there like big yeah. for me it's not that good oh right I, i've not watched quietly. it so yeah i just i don't know whether i can yeah give my the cost of my life away to, to watching that but i remember the, going to watch the road you know the the Cormac mccarthy adaptation which is not like a you know not like this or anything but i really struggled through that i, I don't know i think i was in a bad place i was just kind of like i can't be dealing with, with this and when there's that scene in it where i don't know if anybody's seen it but i'm trying to keep this one scene where basically the main character is having to make a decision whether he's going to kill his son or not okay rather than let's these other people get get hold and it's just like oh my god that's you know i can't take that i haven't <laughs> seen it but i yeah. it's okay if you just spoil it yeah, no, sorry <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's funny i remember screening seven once and i showed the end of that and, and like people were moaning you spoil it said, this is 25 years old it's a bit late to be worrying about seven you know i suppose the other thing what, what what's really great from a nostalgia standpoint as well is the texture of vhs i mean i remember um you know that the, the analog technology of moving backward and forward and that being something so you know even just sort of recording something on the television is a, a new thing it sounds so archaic now but even like watching my old dvd collections i don't remember when dvds first came out it was like that idea of this is going to last forever and it's perfect quality and stuff and you put them in now and they it's and so some of this so bad yeah so bad yeah, we were like it's all marketing it's yeah same, remember like when it was mini discs versus mp3 yeah and mp3s one mini discs were much better yeah well it's the same with beats and accent yeah exactly. VHS. yeah so <laughs> laser disc back in the day as well but that was actually something that people that's what mp said when they talked about video analysis they said the, like the problem was that people were going to play them over and, oh, over no, and no, no, study no. them yeah and the only argument centers could come up with was well the quality the quality of the tape isn't very good they'll wear out fast yeah so it's not a problem <laughs> so eventually kind of disappear inside <laughs> yeah, they all disappear but there's actually um charlie shackleton is up from like he was showing yeah. making films and just uh, they get destroyed in the playing don't yeah. they which is an interesting interesting idea rather than this you know preserving everything i mean i don't know now on your third viewing have you got kind of any any more thoughts on on the idea of what this film is actually saying about her whether, whether she actually killed her sister or not and that she's used this um way of watching as a as a censor to kind of not just that that idea of protecting the public is a facade to cover veil her own memories of what she's done because the evil's inside her kind of thing is that what you think <laughs> <laughs> yeah i kind of do think that but i think that, that you know there is an there is another reading yeah i don't think she did okay um i think that i mean it's just it's all kind of like it's put together so perfectly because she has this you know this one traumatic moment where her parents handed this death certificate yeah. the next day she goes into work and it's when they say they're calling him the amnesia killer right and her like she's you know sort of the sound kind of dips in and out yeah and it's um because you know because she can't remember and at that point i really like how it sort of made me think as well i don't know if it's quite the era but i feel it's the same era as kind of the satanic panic and it's preceding that era of um recovered memory therapy right and there's that really great bit where she goes into the video shop and goes says so we've got someone's recorded over the end yeah, yeah, yeah. and i think that's kind of what that's like a clue to what's happening in the film like someone's recording over the end yeah and so oh, that's, that's a great idea from yeah. that point on is 
is like it's a bit like what happens with recovered memory therapy where like you know you just, these things just get suggested to you, right. to you and so she just has this sort of series of events where you know first of all it's suggested to her that someone couldn't remember murdering someone right and then it's she sees this this film about these two sisters and one of them kills the other one and then it just kind of and then you know as everything she sees gets pieced into the yeah into so the they're memory. like our memories then are kind of like videotapes that have been recorded over again and they you can peel them that. back yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. or you can't peel them back because <laughs> yeah, yeah, once, yeah, they're yeah. once they're damaged once you've played them over and over again they degrade yeah. that's so right that's actually I think that is what, what they and then maybe that's the aging process that we get so old because we, we, our memories have been kind of Overlaying yeah. each other, and then we can't kind of get exactly. it. I don't know what we're going to right? Completely mad. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> We've got too much in there. But I think, I mean, I think she just feels. Uh, it seems like she has this family where her parents are really angry with her and they blame her. Mm. And she kind of has to just take any like normal feelings of, you know, aggression or sibling rivalry. Or because she probably, you know, like I, I remember desperately wishing my sister would go away. Who's <laughs> actually called Alice, so oh, <laughs> like wow. when I was little. Um, and if she disappeared, I would feel terribly guilty about that. Yeah. You know? So I think, um, and then so she gets this job, and I don't think she gets this job to protect people. She gets this job because she can't like bear any kind of any kind of aggressiveness in herself so you have yeah. to have it externalised yeah that's right basically and again that feeds into kind of the idea of why we watch horror films mm. or you know there's that I mean they played at the beginning of the of, of the film I think it was one of the clips in the background which was kind of like we need these outlets for our darker sides of our personalities and stuff like that and that's the, the functioning of something like horror movies of why we it allows us to externalize these dark things yeah you know and that's the basis of a film like the purge or something like that in terms of a, that, that being made sort of part of the narrative let's have this one night where you know anything goes so i'm almost sort of kind of less in that in that sense yeah i think so i think it kind of helps you like as you said um, i don't know if you said earlier before we were recording but that it does, it's kind of this controlled environment where you can feel these yeah. feelings. But Do you think we're always kind of like, though, we always stay on, this, on the side of realizing this is unreality? I mean, we do. I mean, that, that, that's, but. But if I we think, didn't, we'd end up like Exactly. That. But, but then, you, you know, the, going back to your sort of podcast and its basis on psychoanalysis, I mean, I think one of the, one of the kind of Lacanian readings of, of film is it allows us. It, it kind of functions of helping us to repress back to when we were children when we had no responsibilities. So it's a kind of infantilization process. So we can identify with the fantasy on, on screen mm. and it allows us to sort of leave behind all, all of our adult repressions and responsibilities. And, yeah. and why, which is interesting here because it kind of explains the total identification. It's like that barrier, that boundary of film person that's been completely crossed. But I suppose when we absolutely identify with a film in some way, you know, you know, it absolutely profoundly affects us on an emotional level or whatever, we can almost feel it physically. There's a sense that we become part of it, you know, maybe in our, you know, in our psychology. Yeah, that definitely. I think it's interesting you said, I actually didn't know that, the idea that film viewing kind of puts us in a childlike state. And maybe that's, I mean, pretty, like, According to Freud, that's when all of those kind of bad feelings, we first kind of encountered them. And, you know, if we have them later in life, we're just kind of repeating the same yeah. sort of 
Aboriginal traumas. Right. So maybe that's it's it's useful to be kind of childlike when you're watching a horror film. Yeah. Uh, actually, I've got a. Like, I was my boyfriend's psychoanalyst, and I was sitting next to him, and I was going to take what he said and take credit for it, but I can't do it. Um, he said, he said, um, he said, we watch horror movies because we feel guilty. Right. Like the yeah, it's like the I don't know if I'm going to explain this properly, but the, what that kind of meant to me was that it's we're already we're already kind of feeling guilting. Yeah. And it's useful to like just have something to project that feel onto. Right. Or to feel, you know, to feel and yeah, and externalize it again. Exactly. Rather than thinking about it and internalizing it, I suppose, yeah. in that in that sense. Great. Well we've got a roving mic. I don't know if anybody wants to make a comment on the film. Uh, or ask a question or anything like that. Somebody's gonna otherwise it's just me and Sarah. <laughs> Can't continue on. Yeah, go ahead. Always nice to be the first one, thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, thanks for putting the film on. I didn't get a chance to see it when it um, when it came out of floor. I was struck by how um, sort of thematically similar it was to another film that came out at the same similar time, same ward. Um, yeah, yeah. Particularly that ending was, um, you know, really left left that, left you with that same feeling. You know, her journey was pretty similar. Um, it's not really it's a question about the, the film that I have, but. Um, there seems to be a lot of chat that we're going through this kind of golden age of cinema, of horror at the moment, um, and and I think um, from from my perspective, you know, there's that term elevated horror, which I hate to hear. It's sort of, <laughs> there's been good horror, good intelligent horror films made forever, but mm. what do you guys th- do? You think like there is a moment now, either here in the UK or sort of globally, of a kind of golden age of cinema where it's either being taken seriously again in circles that would kind of have shunned away from it or is it just a kind of uh, or is it something else mm, I, I don't know I mean to me it's just another part of the cycle of different aspects of film and art more generally looking for ways to be taken seriously or given the due as art as art forms and I think that it relates back to that idea again that we were talking about beforehand about the, the, the pleasures in watching and you know n- nobody can account for the way that any individual might watch a film but I suppose it splits between the idea of something that can be intellectualized and then something that is just felt and I think the latter is considered something that is unruly and you know, it, it, it's difficult to kind of intellectualize something that you just have a, an emotional response to, and is often connected with the feminine as well. On you know, in the binary opposite to the idea of intellectualization and and uh, you know, knowledge and thought and all that, and the masculine. I'm not condoning that by the, by the way. I'm just saying that, that the way that those things have have, have have kind of been thought through in in terms of film studies for sure. But like all genres. I think they, you know, there's periods when they come to the fore and they disappear. And, you know, it's the same, looking back historically, look at something like the Western, for example, when it wasn't really considered. It's just sort of dime storytelling and Americana and that kind of stuff. And then suddenly now you have very serious allegorical revisionist Westerns and stuff like that that say something about the American condition or whatever, you know. So I think people are always, especially with the thing that they're into, they want to make it matter and intellectualizing it is, is one way of doing that i don't know if you agree with that yeah i agree i think um the whole 
the idea that elevated horror is something we've only just been having <laughs> yeah. is, is crazy because you know there's been elevated horror films since we started making horror films some films, horror films are great and some horror films are just fine um but again i think it's something to do with the uh, you know people need something people need something to write about and that you know people need to mark people want to market more horror films and get funding for their horror film and so it's just something that kind of happens but no i agree i agree with you i think it's um it's the horror film there's been great horror films for a long time i think there are elevated horror films but they're not often now at all yeah that's interesting i mean it's funny with this one i didn't find this particularly viscerally you know overwhelming or anything like that and actually it made me you know, it may, maybe wants to kind of deconstruct it intellectually, but maybe that's just because I've got to say something halfway smart. <laughs> <laughs> Try to anyway. Yeah. Oh, I and, find this one quite emotional. Oh right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's the female avatar. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there, there's so many tropes in this that I mean, it's one of the good things. I think it it knowingly plays on a lot of stuff. I mean, with the white dress or the white. Uh, nightdress and you know that reminded me of Carrie you know the, the, the static on the TV anybody who's seen Poltergeist which I still love um, and it reminded me a bit I mean it's an obvious comparison to a recent movie but Barbarian Sound Studio that sense of you know the, the, the character is falling into the film and becomes part of the film at the end is quite similar to that but there's lots of ways it's playing with the tropes of horror in a, in a knowing way but I, I didn't feel like like they do sometimes with with the genre movies of today that are utilizing nostalgia that i'm it's being overly packaged for me and you know it, it, it kind of does it in a smart way i think anyone else no no other comments anybody not like the film oh, george go ahead save me <laughs> so it's a two-part question Firstly, how do you feel this film fits alongside other horror films that are about horror films? Right. You mentioned Barbarian Sound Studio, but also things like Ring mm. or um, John Carpenter's Cigarette Burns or Sinister. And But then I wonder if those desire to watch or participate in films that kill you is just the trope of doing the thing that is bad for you in horror films, enacting the forbidden desire, solving the Hellraiser puzzle box, picking up the hitchhiker, but then... Going to church. Right, don't go to church. But then Sarah, if all films are about desire, and all horror films are about desire, are all films ultimately horror films? Oh. <laughs> you go first. Um, <laughs> I feel like I don't need a minute to think. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, I feel like, goodness. And I think, what was the first part of your question again? About, <laughs> that's about a kind of meta, the, yeah, yeah, the film yeah, within yeah. the horror film, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you the time to think, because I think I've got something I can say on this. So, I, one of the things that was interesting about this was that, well, there was this moment where it, it alluded to the idea of the snuff film. And, you know, I think there's always the, this kind of, mythology about the idea of what's real or what's not and I think maybe subconscious I mean there are specific films in which that has been sort of talked about you know that, that something is actually happening and even now we still have debates around kind of like pornography and sex in, in similar you know what's the difference between pornography if 
the actors are uh, actually doing it. Just if you give it a big budget and, and a really nice story, then you know, is it still pornography if it's quote unquote real? And I think maybe there is that sense in in horror. I think particularly um, be, because of the way it deals with death and, and, and this kind of thing that there is always that element of jeopardy that we might imagine that these things are really happening on screen, even though you know everything is constructed. And I think it, the interest then of horror movies that play with horror movies are playing with that meta element that there is a possibility that this could have actually happened and that's where the, the horror lies. I don't know if that makes any sense. But. <laughs> I'm still struggling with the question. <laughs> um, I don't know if all films are horror films, no. <laughs> um, I think, um, I don't know, I think that films, a lot of films tend to be detective films, if that's like not too much of a leap from what you're talking about. I think that's something we found, I found when I've talked with Mary about films, is that like that's a detective film in a way. You know, I think that's something that's really lovely about films like The, like the Ring and like actually Bavarian Sound Studio as well, is that kind of, you have, because you have characters sort of searching for searching for the truth I suppose it's kind of like the psychoanalytic process on screen um, but yeah whether all films are horror films I'm not sure but you could say I, I think it would be easy to sort of talk about all films being about desire on some level yeah because the, you're desiring the, the very act of looking or looking is an as it is, is a desiring process you know there's some of the famous famous articles have been written about this this idea of course yeah that's true I think um, I don't know, I think that um, I wasn't totally sure about the idea of like watching yourself watching, mm. um, and I'm not totally sure about the idea of um, being this kind of sort of ma like as a woman being this kind of masochistic spectator who's like looking like looking through the male gaze. At yeah. Points. Um, I think, like, I much prefer the idea of being a child. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, children are primarily just desiring creatures. So, yeah, if we're all kind of children watching films, then, yeah, they're all films about desire. And, and it's interesting now, because obviously, like, listening to you, you and Mary talk, um, and I remember in the last episode on, on the, your LFF roundup, mm -hmm. you were talking about that film that was basically based, based on the male gaze. That, what was it called? Oh, uh, which you both slagged off big time. Something, yeah. something. I didn't see it. Right. Um, I didn't slag it off. <laughs> but Mary <laughs> properly did, didn't she? Let's be honest. She wouldn't mind us saying that. <laughs> Mary was unimpressed. I don't know why she, like, I just immediately just, I didn't want to go and see it. Right. I knew what it would be like. Um, yeah. But, Mary but there is that kind of sense that is out there again in discourse that anything that is on screen that is sexualized in any kind of way is always from the perspective of you know you have to treat it through the male gaze or understand it through the male gaze and there's so many kind of problematic aspects to that first of all if it's a female filmmaker i mean you know on a kind of production level but then you know it, it just narrows the, the possibilities of what it means to desire or what it means to have find pleasure in in, in looking mm -hmm. and you know, I think it really sort of does narrow the, the conversation about what it means to find pleasure in, in films. It's, and especially when you get to that kind of limit of 
from the taboos and the illicitness of finding things pleasurable, but not quite knowing what that pleasure is, especially if it's something that society deems you shouldn't find pleasurable. Maybe, though, I was thinking about this idea of, you know, needing to feel, of, like, feeling guilty so you watch films. Mm. And so maybe, like, all of, maybe documentaries like that are just doing a huge public service of yeah. making us feel as naughty as we, like, desperately want to feel. <laughs> right. So maybe that's the thing. Like, maybe it doesn't really, maybe um, we're worried about all of this sort of censorship yeah. and guilt. But, um, but, yeah, maybe it's performing, like, a... Um, an essential function of making us feel naughty. Yeah, <laughs> but, it, but but it's funny though. In the, in the conversations about that, it's very it's very rare that that we allow us. Oh, again, how to how, how to word it. the conversation goes past the point of um, admitting the taboo of liking something that is taboo in society, right? So what I mean by that is if you go and watch something that is, you know, overtly violent or sex or, you know, something as problematic as rape, right? The film always, or a lot of the time, most of the time, gives you a kind of ideological out. So if there is a if there is a rape scene in, in a movie, then there is a revenge for that, or there is a redemption for that, or somebody goes to prison, or... Because in a sense then, as a watcher, it gives you a place to go which isn't kind of like, oh, why am I just watching this rape scene? Mm -hmm. I can actually then say, oh, ideologically, it, it functions to to punish whatever has gone on before. Which then, if you open that out and say, well, do we ever really go and watch things just for for their own pleasure of watching, just that, that kind of emotional response? Or is there always a kind of you know societal kind of awareness of what who might say what and and the filmmakers know that and we know that as a, as audiences so then it's very di difficult just to to get to the point of admitting or you know thinking through the idea of just raw pleasure in and of itself because there's too much there's too much around it maybe i don't know i think um sort of Sorry, that was really long-winded. Really, <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, it's interesting. I don't know if um, if there's anything to kind of really be sneered at in the pleasure of redemption. Yeah. Or, I don't know, maybe it's just, uh, it's just kind of a way for us to mm. get some kind of closure. Yeah. To but even like what we were talking about before, that like the simple idea of that, if you have a sex scene in a movie, it has to be placed because it fits into the narrative somehow. It can't, just be there for its own sake because there was a lot of argument about this again you know social media is a lot of else for everything but it's an interesting idea isn't it it's the idea that so if if the sex scene whatever that looks like is not connected to the plot and is just there for pleasure you're simply saying yeah here's the pleasure watch that right and that's therefore valuable or whatever word you want to use in and of itself it's we go to see that that, that thing but putting it in the plot then gives you a Oh, I said, oh, it was part of the plot, so it's okay. It's okay that it was there, which I think is. I suppose so. I suppose it's um, it's the debate of uh, a, like a well-constructed movie versus <laughs> yeah, 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 like yeah. pure experimentation. Yeah, I um, guess so. Both of which are kind of quite valid in cinema, yeah. Yeah. I suppose. Um, I think they're both. They're definitely both valid. Mm. But it's interesting that I think like that that, that that argument of why have you got that sex scene there if it's not ser serving a function, let's say. For the film maybe well. it just it doesn't serve the function that you you know narrative isn't the only function. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> what I would agree with. Top mark. Yeah, yeah. Well <laughs> <laughs> Tick. Yeah. Sorry. 
any any other comments that anybody wants to make? Yeah, go ahead. I just the word that came to my mind when you're talking about that is gratuitous. Right. And I think that's a concept that's done a lot of work in the history of censorship. Yeah. Censorship. Uh, and it's it's this also quite funny quite funny bit early in the film where they're arguing about something whether something is gratuitous or not. I mean, how do you make that call? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a film like the kind of films they're watching, what, what does it mean for something to be gratuitous? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it just shows how prudishness is so powerful. The idea that if you're going to show sex, rape, violence, that it has to serve some kind of higher purpose. Otherwise, there's something really terrible going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think it links to what we sort of talked about before about that having to be made clear about why something is there because it does serve some higher purpose. And it links to the, you know, maybe the more contemporary mm-hmm. definition of sensorialism, you know, that we kind of deal with today a little bit more, you could argue. Any any other final points? Well, we'll leave it there. For oh, Tom, go ahead. I really like the joke in this. Oh, it's, it's kind of a joke when they talk about the horror directors as like geniuses because there's always this thing about like taking something that everyone else thinks is quite awful and then this niche thinks it's amazing. But also, I think it speaks to a time when there was all these filmmakers making all these films, like The Driller Killer and all these films. And then some of these directors did turn out to be like very brilliant directors. And I think it's an interesting point about horror as a genre, about a first time filmmaker genre or as a way to get into the industry because it already has all these things connected to it and it already has this audience that exists and it's always a good springboard and I think it, it kind of did that very well in a way. I mean, some of these films are also awful, but I think the Driller Killer is pretty good actually. Yeah. He's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I mean, I suppose that, that links to the kind of Roger Corman place in history in many ways, you know, of an awful lot of American cinema as we know it and things that are canonized now come through him as a as a sort of producer, Svengali, whatever, and just a, somebody who encouraged talent and gave them gave people opportunities, I suppose. Yeah, I liked that the character sort of one of the, the character of the producer was there because I think it's something that you don't that you don't think about is yeah. how influential producers are yeah. in horror cinema. Yeah. You know, it's, I like that he wasn't that the sort of antagonist wasn't a director; he was a producer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I don't know, it's just like a nice nod to the... And great casting, Michael Smart is always good value. Amazing, so decorated good apartment, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, we'll leave it there. Sarah, thank you very much indeed for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you guys for coming, and we'll see you next time on the podcast.